this week on Dig Me Out. That was your fault, not ours. It was my fault. I <laughs> talked too much. What can I say? You told us the entire history of evil. <laughs> I did. We got, the, we got the, the, the history of evil on planet Earth from Tim. <laughs> Tim and Jay review The Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers. Mr. Lennon, awaken the boy. Mr. Stalin, bisexual. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again for episode 182, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we're in our fourth season, we're in 182nd episode, and it's a good time to go big. And by go big, what? yeah, I know. Well... We've what the tackled, hell does that mean? Well, we've tackled some some records that we consider, you know, pretty big records in our, I guess you'd say, music um, pasts. In our in our what we've listened to as as fans of music as is inf- influences. I'm thinking of like we yes. we did the Catherine Wheel record this year. Did, oh, uh, that kind of big. Yeah, that kind of I big. See where you're going. You know, okay. things that are big deals to us. Yes. Yes. And we're gonna do it again. We're gonna tackle we appreciate from many angles. Yes, we're gonna tackle a big record for us. Not necessarily for everybody, mm-hmm. but it's a big record for us. And it's the Manic Street Preachers' third album, The Holy Bible. And since it's their third album, we thought we needed a third person to come in and help us out on this record. Joining us for the third time. See, there's this is a this is a very <laughs> play your play your lottery numbers, three, three, three people. <laughs> Uh, joining us for the third time, Mr. Andy Dare from the Andy Dare Show. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Always have a blast with you guys. And uh, yeah, I, I, I always enjoy your show. And uh, speaking of Ohio, I've I've had I actually had the pleasure of uh, speaking with three um, you know people from Ohio in my last season. Um, Tobin Sprout from Guided by Voices I had him on. Um, Doug Gillard from uh, once for a long time he was a part of Guided by Voices and like mostly known for Cobra Verde and Dave Hill as well. So yeah, I, I dig your guys' state and I dig the rock that comes from it. Three very cool guys. Certainly. And uh, yeah, just got to meet Tobin Sprout and Robert Pollard uh, when Guided by Voices uh, rocked Chicago about a week and a half ago. And it was yeah, pretty mind melting. Uh, getting to meet some guys you've been uh, checking out their music for nearly twenty years. So, awesome. How many songs did they play? They did a pared down set of about twenty five because it's part of a festival. And, oh, okay. Uh, and Pollard only had about four or five beers, so he was he was pretty wow. sober. And uh, yeah, but it was. I, I actually uh, talked to the guys, talked to the manager, and uh, ended up with the set list. So it's sitting on my desk. Really need to get a frame for that thing before I spill a beer on it. You know, that's cool. Well, you had suggested a little while ago, probably sometime last year, um, that we tackle a Manic Street Preachers album, and it just so happened that the Manics have a new record out. This album comes out on uh, July seventh, I believe, in the states, seventh or eighth. No, by seventh in the in Europe and eighth in the United States. Um, it's called Futurology, and we thought, well, this would be a good time to tackle a, a Manic Street Preachers album. But there's so many Manic Street Preachers albums that you can tackle from the 90s. We figured 
what's the one we're going to go with? And there's a, there's sort of a direct correlation between the new album, Futurology, and, and the Holy Bible, which is what we're covering. One of those things is that if you look at the typeface that's used in the um, artwork, they both use backwards R's, which was something that, I guess, um, Nicky Wire was a fan of the uh, the band Simple Minds, who I did not know, but before they had their, their hit single... Um, which I believe is uh, Don't You Forget About Me. Sure. Yeah. They were actually kind of a a bit more of a, I guess you'd say a thinking man's band. They were a bit more, um, not necessarily political, but just uh, a little bit more angular and uh, not quite as, as poppy. And on their album Empires and Dance, they used the backwards R in yeah. a similar fashion. So, And the new album Futurology is, is drawing some lyrical comparisons to the holy bible um it's sort of the third in the uh i guess you'd say the i don't know what you'd say the backwards r trilogy i think journal for plague lovers falls into this also because and we'll get into it but there's a tie-in between journal and in holy bible but so andy when did you first discover the ministry preachers i would say about 1996 and uh so it was after obviously after this one and everything must go. It was a huge record overseas, and it it even made a splash over here a little bit. And obviously, after the death of Richie James, and uh, yeah, been been pretty much a fan since ever since. And uh, yeah, Love Journal for Plague Lovers, produced or recorded, excuse me, by Steve Albini from Chicago, and uh, love that one. And uh, I think Send Away the Tigers is that one from about 2007. That one had, I think, like their most streamlined, most strong set of songwriting, I think, in their entire career. So that's probably a career highlight for me. Haven't heard the new one, or I've heard the single from the new one. Didn't really do too much for me. But, yeah, the last one, Rewind the Film, I would uh, call it Pastoral. And mm-hmm. I, I was I was joking on Twitter saying that me and my uh, my rock critic buddies – that's the word we use when something is boring. So, well, I, I'll say in the in the defense of rewind the film, I found that to be an excellent winter album. Mm. It's huh. very melancholy, and it's and it's there's almost no guitars on it. It's it's driven by, you know, there's, there's some acoustic guitars and whatnot, but it's driven a lot by piano and strings and and horns and and it's but it's also very mellow. And I listen to it a lot driving to work in the snow. In, in Ohio, and I found it to be like a very appropriate sort of, I don't know, it somehow captured the Midwestern mint winter, even though it's, you know, a bunch of guys from Wales, although I, I imagine their their winters are not far off from the winters in Ohio, cold and dreary, so. Uh, <laughs> this last one was terrible, too, the, the polar vortex. Uh, yes. That's what Guided by Voices said, they recorded the whole, this Cool Planet album in the, during the polar vortex, and... Uh, I guess Bob Pollard always wants to hear the song on a cassette in his car after they record demos. So they'd all have to put on their jacket, their mittens, their hat, their boots to just to go listen to the demo back. <laughs> nice. So, Jay, when did you first uh, get into the Mannix? I want to say you and I got in, into them at the same time. Um, yeah, I got them into because of you. you. I think you introduced them to me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it was around Everything Must Go, right? Or- Actually, I think it was in between. I think it was after. I'm gonna say like '97 or '98, because okay. I think it was around when "This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours" came out. Actually, 
Okay. And then we went back and got and got everything must go, and sort of worked our way backwards from yeah. there. I think they were just a band that I read a lot about and finally just picked up a record, and that's that must have been the one. Mm-hmm. This is my truth must have been the first one, and then I remember we both sort of worked our way back from that point, um, discovering their early records. And this is one and of those we're surprised bands at the origins. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those bands that like was in the enemy a lot when you were reading about or or Melody Maker or any of those, you know, British magazines and you sort of read about them but they never made any impact on Amer- American radio. So they weren't like Oasis or Blur or even for that, you know, Pulp or Supergrass. They were sort of this weird British only band that or UK only band that uh, wasn't getting any radio play here, and I don't even remember them at the radio station in college. Um, so it was definitely like a take a chance on it. You know what? I think it might have been that it might have been that this is my truth telling me yours was at the Virgin Mega Store at a listening booth. That might have been the Possibly. first time I heard it. it yeah, I was gonna say like it was kind of a cool era because Britpop had uh, like I was me and my buddies were huge fans of Britpop. We loved Blur. That was my first show ever. Um, got into Pulp, got into Super Furry Animals, Supergrass, all those bands, but like only I'd say about two to three percent of the school's population had even heard of any of these bands. So you kind of kind of gave ourselves some bragging rights, like we know about something that everybody else doesn't know about. Sure. When we, I think Tim and I both felt the same way about this band. You know, it was one of the. Yeah. I think you, what you were saying, like they they would in an article written about that genre of music they might get mentioned but it was the band that nobody in america had heard <laughs> so as we started digging into it sure i think we kind of we started to own it that way you know like oh this is the the one brit pop band that nobody knows and as we dug in further we realized they're not really brit pop it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the early the, at least at the early yeah. records are not no well, let's do, a, let's do a real quick, uh, we touched on a little bit of history, but let's do a real quick history, just sort of a surface history. The band formed in, 90, in 1990, or excuse me, 1986 in Blackwood, Wales. The original lineup was James Dean Bradfield on uh, lead vocals and guitar, Nicky Wire on guitar and uh, lyrics, Sean Moore on drums, and then they had a different bass player for the first two years who left in 1988. That's when Nicky Wire moved to bass. And they brought in Richie Edwards, or Richie James, um, to play rhythm guitar, although he's primarily the lyricist. He really never did much on guitar other than um, some basic stuff. And as was mentioned, he actually disappeared from a bridge um, in on February 1st, 1995. It was uh, about six months after they released the album that we're recording, The Holy Bible, and his body was never found, so he was declared a missing person up until 2008, and that's when his family legally had him de- uh, declared dead. One of the, it was, I think that was also, in terms of the history of this band, was one of those things that I remember hearing about a guy who disappeared from a band who was never found, but I didn't know what yeah. band it was. Jay, did you feel, yeah. did you, yeah, that's what I thought. Well, there was a, there, yeah, and there was, you know, obviously a mystery to it. As we got into this band, it just added to the, the intrigue. You know, as you, we, we kind of heard it in the periphery, but then actually, you, you know, start listening to the music and reading about them and understanding, uh, even understanding what his role was, which was so uh, weird. I mean, it's very unusual. Right. Um, 
I think it just added to the whole fun, you know, at that time of digging around and understanding a little bit more about this band. So their first album came out in 1992. It was called Generation Terrorists. And on this record, Edwards and Wire split the lyric writing duties about 50-50. A year later, their second came, second album came out. It was called Gold Against the Soul. And then the year after that, The Holy Bible was released. And on that album, about 70 to 75 percent of the lyrics are attributed to uh, Richie Edwards. Now that doesn't mean like entire songs. Richie would write a verse and then Nikki would write a chorus or vice versa or they would trade lines. So, but for that record, uh, Richie had written about 75% of the music. As mentioned, um, a year after or six months after the Holy Bible was released, he disappeared. The band broke up or not broke up, but they um, went on hiatus for six months and then they asked his family if it was okay if they could continue as a band, and they gave the blessing. So they started working on uh, their fourth album, which was Everything Must Go. It came out in 96. It contained five songs that Richie Edwards had written. Two years later, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours was released. Um, it sold four million copies worldwide. It's their highest-selling album to date. And it was the first album to not contain any lyrics by Richie Edwards. Uh Next album came out in 2001. That was Know Your Enemy. In 2004, the album Lifeblood was released. The and that band one never had an American release. Lifeblood didn't. That's correct. That's correct. I had to buy that as an import. I still have that on CD. In fact, um, I believe this new one. Are you sure this new one is being released in America? Because I saw a lot of fans complaining that it was uh, unavailable or something. And then the iTunes was UK only, which is annoying too or something. Well, let me put it this way. I will get the album, legally or not. (laughs) (laughs) They actually, I don't think they've actually officially released an album in the U.S. since the best, the greatest hits package that came out in like 2011. I think Journal of Public Lovers was the last record in 2009, was the last original. Because that's what they they toured in the U.S. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, After Lifeblood, the band, uh, not separated, but they went on hiatus uh, Nikki Wire and James Dean Bradfield both released solo records. Uh, they got back together to put to music a notebook of lyrics that were remaining, uh, which became the album Journal for Plague Lovers. Uh, that was all left over from Richie Edwards. The, the following year, the band released Postcards from a Young Man. Then they went on hiatus again. Released a box set called National Treasures which was a singles collection, all the singles that they had released up until that point. And in 2013, they released the album Rewind the Film, and as mentioned uh, on the release of this podcast, there are this week they are releasing uh, the new album Futurology. So that's the history of the Ministry Preachers. Of course, if you want to suggest an album, please visit the request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. I do want to mention, just before we get into the review, there's a book called Everything, a book about the Manic Street Preachers. It was written by Simon Price and was released in 2004. So it was just before excuse me, the band went on hiatus. And if you're looking for an in-depth, really well-written, not always pretty and positive history of the band, um, it gets into the dark side, a lot of the ugliness that went on with this band. Um, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting read. Um, and it includes not only like the history, but then 
the making of different records, um, the some of the stuff that was going on with regards to Richie Edwards and his various issues. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating read about this really fascinating band. So let's get into the actual record here. Uh, Holy Bible, released in August of 1994, and let's go. Let's do a little track by track. Let's spend a couple minutes on each track. Let's start with the first song on the record, which is "Yes," which has a very positive, you know, "Yes." That's a it's a it's a positive <laughs> statement. Except it starts out with one of the. I guess most, I, I don't know how to say it like, uh, well, I don't even know if I can use, uh, yeah, it's a podcast. I can say whatever the I want. C-bomb? It drops a C-bomb <laughs> in the first two lines of the song. Now, I understand that that means something different in the UK. They, they sort of drop that as... Does it? Well, yeah. Does it mean foot? No, it doesn't mean foot. Does it mean... The elbow? So it's a song, this is a song, uh, as all opening tracks should be, uh, about the subject of, is a prostitution, and it's about not only prostitution but the idea of selling oneself, um, in in the sense of what we give away for to make money to become uh, profitable members of society, whether that's a physical act or uh, whether that's our sanity. But uh, the lyrics of the song are stupendous i mean they're just it's such a shocker because the song itself is actually pretty it's probably one of the more popular rock songs on the album but the lyrics are so so tough the pre-chorus of this song where he talks about if you want a boy what's i can't remember the lyric now because i'm but tear off is c-o-c-k you t- yeah. tear off tie his hair's bunches f him call him rita if you want like <laughs> It's just the it's astounding. I mean, you, like you listen to it, and they had they had pushed politics and social issues and and various things on the first couple records. I mean, the, gener- the first time is called Generation Terrorists, but not to this extent. And this this first song is like a punch to the face in terms of its imagery, in terms of how blunt it is. So when you guys first heard this record, uh, do you remember hearing this first song? I, I always have to with the manics read the lyrics a lot of the times with with the songs because his accent is so thick less now because it's he's he's not trying to cram all the words that richie edwards used to write but when you would read the i remember reading the lyrics and just being like stunned at (laughs) what he was writing well, especially because it's got such a happy guitar line to open the song yeah. up. You're thinking, yeah. you're thinking, wow, this is going to be a nice, you know, happy, happy-go-lucky song. But then the lyrics are just completely dark.
And I always remember the Holy Bible being compared to in utero and uh, same dark themes going on and actually like the last work of kind of a tormented songwriter, kind of. Mm-hmm. So it definitely fits that mold with this one. But yeah, Mannix could always write a pop melody and that's why they were always in the top 10 in England, you know? Yeah. It's such a uh, great transition from the first two records to this song because it kind of pulls you in with that bouncy guitar line and it seems a little different than Gold Against the Soul, but it's still familiar. But then when he drops the C-bomb, your ears perk up and you're like, wait a minute, this is a little different. (laughs) You start digging in deeper and deeper and it just... Um, they start to show some, you know, darker sides, even in this song with like how the fuzz comes in, you know, it sounds a little, it's not that, um, crunchy guitar sound that they have on, um, Generation Terrorist. That's like that eighties reverby guitar thing. It's got a little bit more grit and it's showing, you know, a different side of the band. And I think it's a great opener in terms of setting up what's going to happen. The like one thing another, I was, another- I was Another cool thing about this, excuse me, was uh, like I got in 2006, I got the expanded version. It's uh, mm-hmm. two CDs and a DVD with it. And one of the CDs is the a U.S. mix. And they kind of make it sound a little grunge. You know, it's it's kind of cool. It's, oh, uh, yeah? it's a whole completely different mix. And uh, yeah, the first track is definitely one that uh, it seems to benefit from the U.S. mix the most. I would recommend it to anybody. And the DVD is crazy. They have the Top of the Pops performance where they're all dressed like terrorists. And mm-hmm. uh, they got a lot of complaints for that. But it's really cool to watch that, them perform that on stage. And then all like the dandy Brits just bopping away, dancing to this, you know, dark songs, you know. I think I have that version is it like us? Is the is the dirtier mix like labeled differently? It's called Remember? the U.S. mix, and actually, oh, okay. the band has said that they actually prefer the U.S. mix. That usually when they would, they got the U.S. mix backs for the first two records, and they didn't like them. But they said that the U.S. mix is actually a superior mix than than the original British mix. Okay, nice, interesting. Uh, so the second track, which is the aforementioned, if white America told the truth for one day, its world would fall apart. All one word is I, I would guess I'd call it their version of We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. Yeah. Um it's essentially but it it's an, pull, it, it, but it doesn't pull any punches. No, it doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> it's it's an assault on uh, this was a band that that leans left and they were not afraid <laughs> but they were not afraid to mix it up in terms of their ideology does not always align perfectly with American left and right ideology in the same sense. Um, This song, however, is clearly an assault on sort of Reagan, Bush, one, conservatism. There's, and and a lot of it is an assault on the, uh, the moral superiority that is presented by that particular viewpoint um, and the emptiness of certain aspects of the uh, evangelical culture. There's a line about there. Your morals run as deep as the surface, and uh, there's there's, there's second... not enough black in the in the U- Union Jack or something like right. Something like See that. now that's where I think they kind of confuse American and 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 European uh, conservative and liberal ideologies because they say the line is like there's uh, uh, Republicans say. There's not enough black in the Union Jack. Democrats say there's not enough white in the Stars and Stripes. But if you really think about that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Union uh, Democrats wouldn't say there's not enough white 
in the Stars and Stripes, if if you're th- thinking about current ideologies. I so, always kind of took their politics with, you know, hell, they make great rock music. I wasn't really right. too in-depth with their politics because, you know, they can point the finger as, as much at us. But shit, I mean, England has their own racism problems, their own, you know, structural problems since before America. So right. maybe they kind of are the reason we are the way we are. They, I could point the finger right back at them. So, And and from what I've read in terms of, because I think it's uh, Nicky Wire who wrote a lot of the lyrics for the song, his summation was he was attacking what he saw as an empty culture that was able to dominate the world and sort of pointing out the military follies because they mentioned Cuba and Nicaragua and and all these different sort of interventions that did not necessarily go well, combined with um, various pop culture references, and then sure. sort of these these ideological um, hot button issues. There's the line. It starts out the second verse of the song. It says um, Compton Compton Harlem. A pimp effed a priest. The white man has just found a new moral savior. <laughs> just like... Nice. In, in a lot of ways, if you... I mean, that's pretty... That's over the top. But it is sort of the... That's not too far off from the 24-hour media culture of finding a victim and then um, exploiting whatever situation was. Some One political side or the other is going to uh, exploit that particular situation whether it's a you know a jogger getting raped in central park if even if it's true or not or if it's a uh, you know there's all these examples of you know crimes that have been committed and then there's a, a sort of a political ideology that is ascribed to them by one side or the other whether or not they even apply but you know it's almost like if something happens there has to be a political application for it you have to take a side which means the other side then has to take the opposite side, which is just feeding into the sort of 24-hour news cycle of which would have been at the time CNN and headline news and, and those things and is now even more prevalent with Fox and MSNBC and all those sorts of things. Um, so I sort of get what he's talking about with the, you know, the empty culture and dominating all aspects of our lives, whether it's in the United States or around the globe. Um, this was one of the, the songs that was really different for me for this band, and it sort of threw me for a loop the first time. Not lyrically, because it was musically, that weird verse guitar part, kind of a swirling, I don't even know, kind of a march. And, and then uh, it snaps into this very kind of um, sing-along, Tipper Gore was a friend of mine part, which you know is where the big hook is. But you know, musically, it was a little, probably up until this point, one of the more, I guess, challenging or, you know, odd things they had done. Um, the first two records are pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, music. And this is where it started to, you know, for me with this band, it, it was it started to challenge me a lot more than I think the first two records did. And I think one of the things that's, I guess, you start to see that this is uh, musically going to be a much different record in terms of, like, showing, like, the Joy Division and the, like, the post-punk sort of mm-hmm. influences which were not apparent at all on the first two records the first album right. is guns and roses and the clash the second record starts to integrate sort of like that Manchester sound onto some of it whereas this is like this is a 
very public dark. image limited. Yeah, yeah. P- Pill is another good one. It's a much starker sound. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's a guitar solo, but it's really brief and it's really it's not it's not a showy guitar solo in the sense that it's like something off of um, Generation Terrace where he's trying to do Slash. It's it's a much different take. Yeah. Well, and I want I guess it's a good point to bring this up. You know, listen to this record now. Another thing that really struck me is that from a guitar standpoint, it it sounds like um, it's way more creative, it's way more original, and it just sounds more open and free. And I'm wondering if this is the record where they kind of said, "Look, I mean, let's not even pretend Richie's going to play guitar. I mean, let's just write the best, write and record the best shit we can, and forget about whether or not he can play it live because." I, I don't know. I just I listen to a lot of these songs, but there's no way he's playing. He's not playing no. a single guitar on this record, and there's no, there can't even be an intention that he would be able to play any of this stuff live, you know, because the parts, even the secondary guitar parts are either like weird syncopated, you know, pieces or little accent pieces or like picked in a very precise manner. It's not like the first two records where you could have somebody just hash on some chords, you know, live and, and then they would be okay. This is a lot more precise musically this is pretty much all james dean bradfield and sean moore um writing the music and then you know i think nicky wire contribute he plays bass i don't know that he necessarily at this point was even playing everything in the studio because he was doing a lot of the lyric writing and that sort of thing um let's move on to track three of walking abortion so if you haven't figured out that this is going to be an intense record uh when you get to (laughs) of walking abortion <laughs> um, and keep in mind as we touch on each of these songs the title of this record is the holy bible right it's like okay and what is a walking abortion it doesn't sound pleasant. well yeah. it's a i actually it's read you. See, you are one of the I am. One, yeah we are actually we are men are the walking abortions because men are an x and a y chromosome and women are two x's i believe and that means, and there was a uh, a woman named Valerie Salinas, who was a author. She wrote a manifesto called the the Scum Manifesto in the seventies, and Scum stands for the Society for Cutting Up Men. And she basically <laughs> said that men are walking abortions, and that they they men should be destroyed. Um, I believe she's the woman who shot Andy Warhol. Huh? Jeez. You know this the movie I shot Andy Warhol. Sure. I think it's yeah. Valerie Salinas. Um, so that's where that, that's where that comes from. And she's, and the chorus is, uh, we are, we all are of walking abortions. Right. There's, there's also uh, the other thing I want to get to, which is a, a theme throughout this record is the end of the song says, um, it's like a sort of a, an outro it says little people in little houses, like maggots, mm. small, blind, and worthless, the massacred innocent blood stains us all. Who's responsible? You fucking are. And he's aiming it at the listener, basically saying everyone is responsible for the murder and pain that goes on in the world. And I, I think that one of Richie Edwards' biggest struggles was that when he saw, he was an avid reader, he was a, into art, he was into politics history when he saw all the suffering and pain in the world he basically said we are responsible for this and Mm. nobody is innocent in the in the 
horrors that go on every day. And throughout this record, he basically condemns the human race as being the center of humanity is cruelty is one of the lyrics on this song or on this lyric uh, on this album. So there's so much to unpack reading the lyrics on this album. There's a great website. It's called um, removables.co.uk and they actually have all the lyrics and then they have footnotes for everything that you would want to like look up. He is throwing in all of these references left and right. If you, it's, it is a, you could do a dissertation. You could probably do a whole college course just on unpacking all the references on this record. These are the lyrics that I wish like a band like ministry had, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, right. Like this is what they should be saying. But I think what is really interesting for me on this is that musically it has moments, you know, being very dark. The baseline is very dark and kind of menacing and eerie. But the the chorus part where they're singing, you know, we, we are all walking abortions. It's like a, you know, a, 80s gang style vocal, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, sure. it's, it's got a little anger in there, you know, at the end he screams a little bit and stuff. But it's not like so, you know, melodramatic and over the top. It's, that, I think that's what makes it fun. You know what I mean? It it's still kind of up on like you. soccer stadium, drink along yeah. and <laughs> sing along, right? Yeah, yeah, and then you realize what he's saying, and you're yeah, like, Holy you, shit, yeah, wait a minute, dissect it. <laughs> Morrissey told him to lighten up. I heard after the making of this one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I would not be surprised. <laughs> So when we get to track four, which is She is Suffering, it's a little bit of a, a not a relaxing moment, but it starts out a little quieter than the first three songs. It's definitely not a happy song in any way. And the, it's not even a literal song. It's not She is Suffering as in she is a as a person. It's she in the sense of... Um, like the universal she? Yeah. You have to suffer in some way. And then... As is mentioned later on the album, Four Stone, Seven Pound, one of the ways that one suffers for their beauty is through starvation and um, harming oneself in order to maintain this ideal of beauty. But this particular song is a bit more uh, opaque, is is not as plain as I think Four Stone, Seven Pound is. Um, It's it's not as a literal um, explanation of what is suffering. Um, But I've also read where he said, 
that the she is actually its desire in the sense that, and this is a direct quote from a Chihuahua words. He said, in other Bibles and holy books, no truth is possible until you empty yourself of desire. So in order to sort of achieve truth, you must suffer and give and, and desire nothing. And then you can, and you can find truth. Uh, but there's a suffering that must go on in order to achieve that. And I don't know any of, of, of us have uh, suffered enough to achieve <laughs> that sort of well, emptiness. So, so it kind of works for the heroin. story. It, it works for the story of the band too. They had to yes. suffer to lose him to be, to gain their, their biggest stardom in the years oh. that followed their tragedy kind of. So maybe just to get meta on you guys a little bit. That is very Ooh. meta. Yeah. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to tie it together because to me, this is the song that you could pluck out of and put it on the next record and it would fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sorting, it's really alluding to where they're going. You know, it has the big sing along chorus. It's a little bit more mellow. It's more Brit poppy. Or at least it can fit in that, you know, absolutely. That family of bands. It doesn't, sure. it doesn't really fit with the darkness of the rest of the record. Yeah. And by darkness, I mean track five, Archives of Pain, which is a. <laughs> Basically, it's a an, an analysis of mass murderers and uh, mentions all of them <laughs> from <laughs> from Jeffrey Dahmer uh, to Slobodan Milosevic. And this is the song that uh, that has the line, don't be ashamed to slaughter. The center of humanity is cruelty. So there's a, you know, poppy single for you. <laughs> You think James Dean Bradfield was ever like just getting the lyrics and singing along and looking over at Richie James like, "Are you okay? Are you? Should we call a shrink right now? Or everything all good, Richie?" I don't know, man. I think I almost got the sense that they—I don't want to say exploited him, but like they—I don't know. I feel like they probably thought it was just a great source of material and or egged him out a little heart, bit, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's what I mean, and. I, it's always amazing to me whenever I, every time I listen to one of their records, especially, you know, the particular ones, obviously, that he wrote the lyrics for, where you're just like, how do you take those words and make them into anything assembling a melody? You know, it gets to the point where in some of these songs, he's like, it almost sounds like he's speaking another language. And it's, I know you mentioned the accent, Tim. I think that's part of it, but I think it, it's also like to fit some of the words in and make it melodic, he has to change the way that any human being or any sp- speaking, you know, English-speaking human being would pronounce certain words to make them right. fit. <laughs> mm-hmm, sure. Like even in this song, with the one the end line before it kicks in, he says something about like a Aquila. No, he's saying, saying killer. a killer. Yeah, I know. Aquila. I know. The first time he says it, Aquila. he says Aquila, yeah. and then he says a killer. <laughs> but the first yeah. time he says it, I think it it wouldn't have fit if he would have said killer into the you know the space and the melody that he had in his head so he changed the way that you even pronounce the word to make it fit and it was just a it's a small right. example of like he does that constantly an idea is, is that maybe they he did that to twist the, the like the words a little bit around so that maybe it could get played on the bbc and all this stuff because maybe they would censor stuff that's not necessarily <laughs> swear words but just dark concepts dark themes i'm sure the the bbc is all about censorship in that way too like they don't want to put these dark ideas into the into the youth of Britain, maybe. I mentioned about sort of the, the political leanings of this band not always being clear, and I think this is a clear indication of a band, of a an instance where they're not aligning with the left side of um, 
where they would normally be pegged because essentially what uh, Richie Edwards was proclaiming is that he was proclaiming an eye for an eye uh, on the, in the song because he says, give them the respect they deserve. And he doesn't mean that in the sense that they deserve respect. He says, it's he's for the death penalty, right? He's for the death penalty. He <laughs> says, not punish less, rise the pain, sterilize rapists. All I preach is extinction. <laughs> nice. So he's not yeah. he's not going on the you know put these people in prison for life. He is, if someone has committed murder, you take them out. He's fair and balanced. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But on this record, though, like I don't know, I get the sense a lot of times that he's singing from the point of view of a character. Like he, I mean, he's obviously doing that on track two of White America. Like he's right. singing a lot of the that song as if he's a white American. Um, how do you know, like in a song like this, he's not singing from a particular character's point of view? Because this this record almost feels like a concept record to me sometimes. You know what I mean? Like the there's a consistency of themes, and it's, there's times when yeah. it, the, the voice doesn't. You're not sure if the voice is actually Richie or or, or somebody else. That's a good question i mean i've i've always read it as there was like a demarcation line for him and when you stepped over that line which would be killing someone he had no respect for you that's the way i sort of read it um because he was not opposed to pain in the sense that he used it as an outlet for himself it's also a guy that slashed for real into his arm during a tv taping interview yeah richie james did that okay Correct. And, you know, maybe you can make the argument that he's simply s- delivering those lines from the perspective of someone who was pro-death penalty. But I got the sense that that is a that is a song in which he is making it clear that he this is his sort of point of view and not sort of doing satire or, or poking fun in a way of um, at a particular side of the ideological divide this song has uh, got um what, one of the best guitar solos on the record for sure yeah you well remember? it has a it has a different it has a bit of a more punkier feel um in the chorus uh, when he gets to the recitation of all the serial killers mm-hmm. uh it, it goes it kicks it up a notch and it, it starts to up the um speed a little bit uh which they carry along into the the first half of the record you know Yes, uh, if White America of Walking, those are all like sort of mid-tempo songs. And when you get into Archives of Pain and then Revol, um, and into the back, sort of the middle part of the record, it, it it actually gets more energetic and a bit more um, uh, punkier. It gains momentum, yeah, yeah, sure. and in some ways more chaotic, uh, which is for a record that's pretty tight in terms of its sound. It's uh, it's a nice change but there are there are quite a few pretty cool guitar solos on this record but this is definitely one of the best ones here's a question who produced this i'm not i don't have it in front of me um was it just self-produced by the band or did they have a was the band with a guy named steve brown steve brown huh who worked on a lot of their stuff okay huh and the interesting thing was so they spent a lot of money and went into big studios to do the first two records and the record label said, we're going to fly you to Barbados and you're going to record your third record and we're going to give you this bunch of money. And they were like, to hell with that. And they found this tiny little studio, really crappy in Cardiff. 
and they recorded it there and they worked it like it was a job so they would show up at like eight o'clock in the morning and then work until like eight o'clock at night and then go home and come back the next day and the <laughs> drum sound what the drum sound is very dry on the uk mix and the original mix i guess you'd say and it's was recorded in a concrete room and it was mm. all, the whole album has this like very sterile sort of kind of feel to it not in a bad way i mean there's some reverb on it and whatnot but they wanted like a very dry and very claustrophobic sound to the record as opposed to this big you know well, reverb yeah, the out first record. two records are the first two records have a ridiculous amount of reverb on them yeah so it was actually refreshing to to hear this record the first time and i think it works for the for a lot of the um the music, the guitar riffs that are on here, it it works really well for it. It's a lot. I crisper. agree. Yeah. Uh, so track six, it's the midpoint of the record. It's Revol, or if you spell it backwards, Lover, and it's an interesting. Oh, I never realized that before. Yeah, and it's if you read the lyrics, there's uh, a various political his, historical uh, key uh, characters. Uh, characters is the right word, but. Um, uh, people throughout history, Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, Napoleon, Chamberlain, Trotsky, Che Guevara, Pol Pot, Farrakhan, uh, they are all mentioned. And then uh, the line afterwards is some sort of a, a mention of various uh, Mr. Stalin bisexual APOC. Uh, APOC is, um, I don't even know what the hell that means. It's a... Uh, a point of time distinguished by a particular event or state of affairs. A memorable date. Jesus. Khrushchev, self-love in his mirrors. Brezhnev, married into group sex. Yeltsin, failure in his own impotence. So, from what I read is that Ravel, or Lover Backwards, it's pairing lyrics of totalitarian figures with uh, sexual acts and that they all failed... They're, they're all failed relationships just as politicians fail their people and people fail in their relationships. So it's a positive love song. That's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> this was one of the singles clearly. for the record. Clearly. It's a short song. It's poppy. Yeah, it's, it's classic Manx Street Preachers. Like, I bet they still play this live, right? And they, oh yeah, they do. And the chorus has these foreign words that are shouted Librastrom, culture comp raus raus fila fila do you know what those are take some guesses no. <laughs> okay uh, Librastrom Librastrom was hitler's aggressive expansionist policy to create living space for the german people so basically that was Librastrom was his I- ideology manifest of destiny. yeah manifest destiny culture comp was meaning uh, german meaning culture fight or struggle raus raus was the sound that german soldiers made when they were Getting concentration camp people out of the concentration camp um, freight cars, they would shout "Rouse, Rouse," which meant "out, out." And then "Fila, Fila" uh, is Italian for "form a line." So it's basically Nazis and yelling at <laughs> people. Now, I will say oh there's a lot gosh. of references to the Holocaust and Nazis in Germany because the band actually visited um, concentration camps in between making records, and they were like extremely 
profoundly impacted, and it's mentioned quite a bit. There's two songs completely dedicated to the Holocaust in this record, but there are references throughout the record to the Holocaust, and we'll get into those songs later. But what's, anything else on, on Ravel that I haven't covered that you guys would like to mention? Not really, just a catchy song, but yeah, as you mentioned, just full of an encyclopedia of dark world topics throughout the you know 20th century, I guess you could say. Right. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the bridge. It's a cool little break, and it's mm-hmm. just a good up tempo, an extra preacher song. Like I said, like it. it since then, they've written. I, I feel like there's at least one of these songs on, maybe not every record, but every record since uh, "Know Your Enemy." I feel like mm-hmm. there's a song like this almost on every on every record. So then we get favorites. into. Uh, we get into four, st- four stone seven pound, which is the weight at which death is unavoidable for an anorexic medically. How many pounds is that? Um, I I think that's I, I don't know how many four stone is. Is that twenty? Uh, yeah. So is, so is that what? What's a stone? 80, Eighty-seven pounds. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, let me let me do some math here. Doing math, and <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. Um, so this is a song about anorexia. I mean, it's so Ali McBeal, excuse me for my timely reference, would probably mm. be about four stone, seven pound. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess it depends. I was on trying your to height. think of a skinny person, and that's all, that's the first one I could. <laughs> but I think Richie <laughs> Edwards was like six foot tall, so that's why I was. That's um, oh, true. <laughs> um, this is an extremely disturbing song when you read through the lyrics, and and it's got. Four stone equals 56 pounds. Oh, so it's actually four stone and seven pound is 63 pounds? Or 61? Like that, yeah. Somewhere yeah. there, yeah. That is really thin. Uh, so I'm going to start. Uh, that's the basics of it. Jay, tell me about four stone, seven pound. What do you like? What do you don't like? If you don't like it. Jeez. Oh, again, this is one of those songs where it's um, a little bit more challenging. The verse is kind of... Got that no- one noisy guitar, and it's a, it's almost like a march. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was one that took me a while to get into. then it kind of shifts into like that pretty chorus when he sings about i want to be so skinny that i was it disappear from view 
yeah. just again, and just those those contrasts of like, you know, it kind of comes in and it sounds, um, you know, kind of harsh, and it fits lyrically, and then they move to this halftime part, and it's an quieter part, and a lyric like that just comes out and just bites you, like what who would say something like that like oh my god so i don't know it's just a you know it, it it fits the album really well it says that edwards was also beginning to suffer from anorexia during the recording of this so yeah. obviously yeah jay the line the you're talking is about is i want to walk in um i, I want to be so skinny that i rot from view i want to walk in the snow and not leave a footprint right and then at the end it kind of like it cuts to this I don't even know. It might be a different time signature. Yeah, I think but it's it a sounds time like this, the song is just like falling asleep or dying, you know? So I can think it, based on what you, you know, said the lyric is about, that sort of makes sense. The song starts to just wither away. Yeah, it's like the song is sort of petering out in the same way that, like, yeah. he's he keeps referencing losing weight. Like, he starts out at the first time the weight is mentioned, it's at five stone, two pound. And then later in the song, he mentions four stones, seven pounds. He says, I finally come to understand life. This is the last long line of the song. I finally come to understand life through staring blankly at my navel. It's a tough song to, um, to break down because when you get into the actual lyrics of what he's saying, it's pretty disturbing and sad. But I can't think of another song like it. I mean, it's literally, it's one, it's a, when you talk about, Oh, those, you know, this is another poppy love song or whatever like that. I can't think of a single song that covers this territory written by a guy. And yeah, written by a guy, too, makes it even stranger because right. they have to be, what, 10% of all anorexics? I mean, if that... So let's move on to a lower uh, uplifting song, Mausoleum. <laughs> <laughs> which is... A little summer ditty. Which is uh, definitely about the Holocaust. Um and how I know that is that they actually said that they visited Dachau and Belsen. And the story goes that after a first draft of... Um, so this is paired with the intense humming of evil, which is a great song title. But when they got the first draft of the songs, James Bradfield gave them back to Richie and, and, and Nikki and said uh, they weren't judgmental enough. And he said, you can't be ambivalent about the Holocaust. True. So they're not. Um, <laughs> I think one of the, I guess, images that sticks with me is, is the chorus of the song where he sings no birds. And I didn't really know what that meant. It's like he sings no birds, no birds. The sky is swollen back, swollen, swollen black. Uh, no birds, no birds. Holy mass of dead insect. And I guess that comes from there are no bir- no birds fly over the concentration camps. Like, oh, creepy, but yeah. it's but very, very cool. creepy. And I don't know if that's true, but that's what I read that it's in- when you go there, it's, in- it's very creepy because you don't hear any birds. None of them are flying around. They just stay away. Like they know that they it's sense the evil. Huh. Yes. Twisted. And it, I think what's interesting about this song is this is where they sort of on a musical uh, standpoint, they sort of lean back on some of their older stuff. The chorus has like almost a blues riff going on. Um, I don't know if you picked up on that, Jay, in the guitar playing that he's playing. Which part do you consider the chorus? The no birds part where he goes, no birds. And he's, it's, like he's doing like, 
which would not have been off place or out of place on either of the first two records to do right. sort of a traditional rock riff like that. But the way they do it on this one, it works. Like I've never yeah. been a fan of Generation Terrace. And there's just something about the they hadn't quite figured out how to take a riff like that and do it in a way that worked for them. And I think you're right, it could have been taken off that record, but there's just something about the lyric, the melody, and even the way that they're playing it that it works way better on this record. Yeah. I love the I love the pre chorus and the chorus. This record's got a lot of like really strong pre chorus and chorus combinations and verses that are sometimes mm-hmm. challenging. That seems to be the there's a formula here that seems to be the formula um, where they'll kind of push things in the verses and not be as melodic. But then by the time they get to the pre-chorus, you know, they they pick it up and the, almost all the choruses are pretty memorable. Andy, thoughts on this song? Not too many thoughts on this one. Um, kind of, I think it kind of bridges the gap from Four Stone, Seven Pound to like the more poppier, faster. I think faster is probably the... I'd say the single on the album. If I think it mm-hmm. was the single or if it was yeah. played live most or something. But, yeah, it's kind of not many thoughts on Mausoleum, but Faster, it seems like, uh, definitely deserves to be on the greatest hits. That's how I heard it first and kind of made this album more pal- like more palatable to the whole audience in general, maybe. Faster is... Not only my favorites on the record, it's one of it's probably my favorite Max Street Preacher song, or or in the top five, and one of my favorite songs, um, period. It's so over the top. Um, it's sort of the dark side of "You Love Us," and it's that this it's this grandiose. You know, "You Love Us" is basically saying, you know, we're here, we're your new pop stars, we're your new rock band, you're gonna love us. And mm-hmm. this one is him saying, I. Instead of you're gonna love us, I am the greatest thing of all time. It's but it's 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 bullshit what he's saying. But he's saying things like I am all the things that you regret. I am stronger than Mensa, which is ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> I am stronger than Mensa Miller, which he's referencing um, Miller Arthur Miller, who wrote Death of a Salesman. Uh, I and Mailer, he's referencing Norman Mailer, the sure. yeah. writer. And then I spat out Plath and Pinter, Sylvia Plath and um, uh, Harold Pinter. I mean, he's just, uh, it's such over-the-top, uh, grandiose, uh, del- or delusions of grandeur, that I think he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek with it. Um, but some of the lyrics in here are so good. The one that has always st- stood out to me is, um, I know I believe in nothing, but it is my nothing. And I actually wrote that on a t-shirt when I was, when we were playing in the band and had that on a t-shirt for a while. Um, I just love that nice sort of belief that, look, it's okay to not go along with the prescribed ideologies or, you know, rig- religious conventions. Um, it's all right to, in the same way, but in, in, in kind of BS at the same time, because in the same way that like the, grunge bands were just guys wearing flannel t-shirts and jeans they didn't have a look supposedly but they did have a look their look was what they were wearing um in the same way that like i believe in nothing well no you don't believe in nothing you do believe in something you just don't have it it's just not connected to a established ideology or religion 
sort of refreshing, but then also sort of ridiculous at the same time. And then you get to the end of the song, and he says, so damn easy to cave in, man kills everything, which sort of goes in the overall theme of humanity is awful and ends up ruining everything because it's the center of cruelty and blah, 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 everything that's covered on this record. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <clears throat> what a great riff. Yes. It's so different and cool. It's not complicated, but it's just so well thought out and unique. The, just the use of you know the muting and the stops and... Not over the top, but again, this is like well, Generation Terrorists where they're trying to be essentially trying to be Slash and you're like kind of rolling your eyes a little bit about this record. They've really figured out how to be their own rock band with guitars, you know. And when yeah. the song starts off with, you know, the barking vocal, I am an architect. Just like <laughs> it's biting through those guitar lines and it's just such a grabber. I mean, you cannot, you just can't ignore it. You might, you might not like it, but you can't ignore it. No, can't ignore it. No. Yeah, this is the song they played on top of the pops and got them. They got the most complaints ever when they wore their military fatigues and James Dean Bradfield wore a, a, a balaclava. I think is how it's pronounced. The the mask that like terrorists wear in the wore in the nineteen seventies <laughs> and eighties when they were hijacking planes. Yeah, and lip syncing. So, yeah, it, and, but like yeah. a weird thing about those things. Yeah, the drummer is hitting the drums. Right, you can't lip sync drums and not look super corny. Like they must hear the drums and then the recording around it in the, in the studio. I'm not sure how that works, but I, yeah, obviously one to check out on the top of the pops. That with Nirvana's obviously there smells like Teen Spirit, uh, <laughs> where he just moans it into the mic pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lip lip syncing. Track ten. This is yesterday. This is a a, a Nicky Wire song from what I've read and. Uh, okay. It's it's the, the only one. like breather. It's the breather it's the of the only album, breather. Like, yeah. yeah, finally this could have, take a breath of fresh air. Yeah. yeah, this could easily be on everything must go, or even this is my truth. I mean, this has a is a as close yeah. as they get to mellow on this record. Nicky Wire has covered numerous times in his lyrics about. I mean, the song is called "This Is Yesterday." It's about looking back on on youth, and he's covered that topic uh, on numerous occasions. Uh, it's not my favorite song on this record, but it's a it's very well placed in terms of letting you relax for a minute. It's a simple song, has some interesting guitar stuff going on. It's very uh, straightforward, but um, different from the rest of the record, and it's not as um, layered with. Uh, there's especially on the bass, they do like a lot of like modulation. I think on, on the bass mm-hmm. where they where they add like I don't know what that effect is but it's it gives it a really ominous sound this song is way more straightforward so any thoughts on this record or on this particular song it's okay i mean um it's pretty typical of later records and you can definitely tell it's um you know not the richie james lyrics and it's um it's definitely more open Uh, it's got a pretty cool guitar solo it almost sounds like it was maybe recorded direct into the board you know it's very Mm -hmm. very dry I like it's, it. It's it, not my it gives a nice uh, it gives it a nice break throughout all the all the horror that's happened in the last <laughs> nine songs. So so I'll take it. I think it adds it, it balances it nice and uh yeah, then you're hit in the head over the last couple songs. You're saying die in the summertime and the intense humming of evil or or horrors. But die in the summertime is probably my favorite track because of that roaring chorus and uh really catchy chorus. Um mm-hmm. Super dark lyrics, but that chorus is so catchy. I think that's probably my favorite moment of the album. So. And I think that that song, it's Richie Edwards 
almost summing up the band when he says, I can't seem to stay a fixed ideal. This was a band at the time that had bounced around from, you know, the first album was Public Enemy meets The Clash meets Guns N' Roses. And they were punks that were going to like totally destroy British music and kill all the Happy Mondays and all the the Manchester bands. And then they actually ended up sort of incorporating some of that stuff and making more of a traditional rock record on the second album and, and losing themselves for an album. And then on the third record, they make a very highly political record. And they seem to have trouble figuring out what their ideal was, what, they're, what they were trying to stay fixed on. Um, so I feel like it's a little bit of hymns. You know, there's a lot of, this is another song about, it pairs well with This Is Yesterday, and that it's about sort of looking back and then also, you know, obviously he's saying, I want to die in the summertime. Um, also trying to plot your own end. Although he didn't die in the summertime. He died in February, supposedly. But I feel like this this song sort of is is probably close to his personal uh, lyrical song is you're going to get from Richie Edwards, assuming that all the lyrics are, are his. I don't know how much of it James uh, or um, Nicky Wire contributed, but I think that a lot of this is uh, Richie Edwards. I like that it has... Um like an eastern kind of feel and the mm-hmm. almost like a sitar kind of sound yeah like the scale that they're playing yeah 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 and then and then um <laughs> in that first verse before they get the pre-chorus he like goes up into that high note mm-hmm. it's like and then he hits the distortion and it's just totally i mean it sounds evil it sounds big it just it all comes together at that moment and then that i think that chorus is really strong but it's a little bit unexpected you don't quite know that's where they're gonna go um, so, you know, that whole, again, that whole sequence of that pre-chorus through chorus is, is really where it, it comes to life. But, um, it's just kind of cool to hear them playing with some different sounds and things too in that verse. Speaking of evil, mm-hmm. the intense humming of evil, track 12. Now what's interesting about this song, so it's clearly about the, the Holocaust as is Mausoleum, but he makes some references there. I mean, there's the obvious ones, which is are 6 million screaming souls. He says, maybe misery, maybe nothing at all. Lives that wouldn't have changed a thing, never counted, never mattered, never be. Um, and at the end of the song, he attacks Church, Winston Churchill. And he says, Churchill, no different. Wish the workers bled to a machine. Which is, an, I, I read it as an attack on capitalism. He's saying, if these people were alive, they'd just be working in the capitalist machine and dying a slower death. Because mm. Richie Edwards and... and Nicky you don't Wire. think it has something to do with him saying, like, he didn't do enough to stop it? No, I I think that he didn't see... I, I don't think he looks at... That's how I re- read it in terms of reading the lyrics. Okay. Um, I could see both of your viewpoints, though, on that. Yeah, yeah because they're they're quite clearly in the socialist. And, I mean, they have a song called Socialist Serenade, <laughs> on, which is a B-side on Everything Must Go or This Is My Truth, um, one of those records. But... Yeah, I think I think he's attacking capitalism as much as he's attacking the fascism of the Nazis, which I think is I don't think a lot of people catch that and I think that's pretty bold statement to make and I, there's not really any I don't remember really anything that's like controversial about it or anything. And the music on this one, it almost brought me like a feeling of Trent Reznor, early Nine Inch Nails, Ministry kind of mm-hmm. that metal, that dark almost American metal sound. 
a lot of these English bands at this point were trying to were actually interested in the American or actually not that many of them. So it made a, made Manic Street Preachers kind of different that they you could hear that they were maybe listening to Nirvana, maybe listening to even Metallica or something like that. Just that muscular, brawny metal sound that you could tell that they respected it at least. I think there's some of that, and I think you hear some Joy Division in in it too. In the Joy Division's slower, ominous moments. Sure, well. depressed songwriters. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I dig the drum beat. I think it's really cool. It's, it's very different. And Is there like a delay just, on the on the snare or something for uh, parts of it? Possibly. Uh, last track, PCP, which PC stands for politically correct, and. It has a, it actually it's interesting because it starts out with a with an intro that's completely different than the rest of the song. It goes into a, a, kind of like a, a I guess not really a punk song, but it's much more up tempo than the actual um than the intro of the song. So it kind of throws a curveball. What is your guys' opinions on the song? Andy, you sound like you're a fan of it. Yeah, I think it's like they're ha- it's almost happy punk, it's almost pop punk, like first wave punk kind of like Mm-hmm. Almost like if Bowie had a little bit more punk to him, like uh, kind of the Buzzcocks, uh, the Sex Pistols, if they had more brains about them. Just kind of uh, forget about all the darkness and the despair. Let's have a let's kind of start a mosh pit. Let's slam dance. Let's enjoy the night for the last track of the album. It seems like. I've read it's uh, Richie and, and Nikki were not a fan of political correctness. Um, they felt it was stifling. I do find that this song is a little bit unfocused lyrically, although it's about uh, political correctness. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's covered. That's and is it about PCP the drug at all? Or? No, it's not. It's so like he says. PC caresses bigots and big brother. Read Leviticus, learn censorship. Pro-life equals anti-choice. To be scared of of feathers. PC is a police victory. It's a pi- he said PC is a pyric victory, and a pyric victory is a, a victory with where the where the cost is actually goes to the victor. Um, 
that the the person who loses doesn't suffer it's the person who wins who suffers it, so, it kind of fits the the spirit of the song though like yeah there's going to be one song here where the where you've got some fractured lyrics and you're just kind of painting pictures and shouting some cool lines this would be the one to do it you know musically it, it kind of works for that Tookie, you know yeah it definitely is and it ends kind of with a, a weird, quote rather than um rather than starts with one sort of buried at the end of the song but it's oh, uh, yeah. it's a it's a weird closer a, too you, you think yeah. it would work better earlier in the album too it's it's yeah i was just gonna say that i was gonna say that after the intense humming of evil which yeah. is kind of a monotonous six-minute-long song that's really just lyrically focused. It's kind of a weird... In a way, Closer. it works, but... In some way, I guess it works, but... I don't know. I don't know that I would have made that choice. To me, it, it it feels a lot more like the first record than this record. Sure. It sounds like, yeah, if the first record was a little bit more focused, it would this song would you know, have been a good example. So we've gone over my estimated time, so we should try to get towards the end of this thing. And let's just talk about overalls on this record. Well, that was um, your that was your fault, not ours. It was my fault. I <laughs> talked too much. What can I say? You told us the entire history of evil. <laughs> I did. We got, the, we got the 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 history of evil on planet Earth from Tim. <laughs> um, Jay, where does this? Let me put it this way. Rather than whether you like this record or not, um, where does this record fall in your Manix appreciation? Mm. Is this in the top <laughs> spot? Is this in the top five? They put out a lot of records. So where does this one land? I know. Let me see. I'm looking right now. I think my top three are this, Send Away the Tigers, and Journal for Plague Lovers. Interesting. I need to go back and listen to Everything Must Go, and um, this is your truth or this is my truth from yours i've listened to those two records in a long time i think i just kind of got sick of them so those three are the ones that if i go back now and listen to the band those are the three that i'm going to go back to Um, Mm -hmm. this being one of them this is probably the most consistent from front to back for me there's very few songs on here that i'm going to skip uh so i don't know that it has my favorite songs by them on it you know just individually i might like one or two of the songs on the other records better, but I think as an album, it might be my favorite from start to finish. Andy, what about you? Seems to be the most cohesive. Me personally, I think it's a, a good bridge between their two different worlds. You know, the the beginning of their big arena rock sound, and then then they had this dark era, and then they somehow found a way to uh, pick up all the pieces and totally rise above everything, all the darkness, and create a huge work with Everything Must Go. I mean, that was so big, so many hit singles from that, and uh, that's what I heard first. So hearing this album after that was sort of like, wow, these guys were really tormented and tortured prior to their big uh, epic. So for me, it's probably third or fourth down the list but i still give it a solid four four and a half stars but uh yeah i mean there's they have all these different eras and they all they all have something some rewards to them um i even like the know your enemy album i thought that was a totally underrated uh Mm -hmm. a million different styles shown on that album which on the holy bible there's probably three different styles shown throughout the entire album so I do respect it, and uh, but yeah, just a little bit too dark, a little bit too too many, uh, too much politics and thrown in there. 
Um, that's why I love that at the end, PCP just kind of rocks it and uh, kicks our asses. So, yeah, Manic Street Preachers, though, all, all together, one of my favorite British bands of the past 30 years, easily. Um, I placed this at the top. This is my favorite Manix album, um, musically and lyrically. I think it's their most challenging. Um, it's not the one that I, if somebody's like, oh, what is this band? I don't break this record out. <laughs> I break out Everything Must Go or Tell Me, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, Send Away the Tigers, the stuff that has much more pop-friendly stuff yeah. on it. And I like all those records. Um, I would say probably Everything Must Go would be number two. Send Away the Tigers would probably be three. But I, I like their detours. I like Know Your Enemy. I like Lifeblood in certain respects. It doesn't work for me all the time, but there are a lot of aspects to that album that I really like. Yeah. And I like them as a band because they're not afraid to completely shift their sound for an album and take a, a total detour, but it still sounds at the base well, level them. like them. Yeah. It's still them. When they do those shifts and turns, they're not like some bands that do that where they basically either eliminate members of the band from playing on the record or bring in other members, other people to play on the record. And you're like, okay, well, yeah, it sounds like a different band because it's a different band. This is still the same three guys. Right. And they just, you know, are prolific musically and can do a lot of different things. But I'm with you. I don't, there's not an album by them. I don't, I don't appreciate in some way. I mean, probably the first one is the hardest one for me to listen to, but all the ones since then, I like them and depending on the mood that I'm in and in a lot, you know, just appreciate them in different ways. They're just so unique. I, I can't, it's really difficult for me to like hear any other bands in this band. Um, regardless of the record. Yeah, you can hear bits and pieces of their influences, but they're, I think they've developed into a wholly unique sort of um, sound, even though they're still moving You know, the dial, whether it's with the Rewind the uh, Film album or the new one, which go off in two t- totally different directions. Um, I haven't heard the new one, but that's what I've read several reviews of it. So I'm anxious, and did you anxious hear, to hear uh, that? It. Yeah, the bassist wanted to call this new one 70 Songs of Failure and Despair, I think was the working title. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, James Dean Bradfield said, hey, you got you to oh, bring it back for a little bit here. Oh, man. <laughs> 70 Tim, songs. So they they rarely tour the States, um, and Tim and I yep. got to see them on the Journal tour, which I think they only played in the United States, what, two shows? Detroit, maybe Seattle or something? Yeah, it was just a couple shows. I missed them, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It was so, so good. And, like, I've seen a lot of bands that I love that when I eventually end up seeing them, I end up being disappointed. And this was, like, in a small theater. I don't know. How many people were there, Tim? Maybe a couple hundred? 500, maybe. Um, They did not care. (laughs) I mean, this is a band that, that sells out Wembley, like, when they were big. And they're playing in Detroit to... 500 people and you would have never known it like they were having fun and totally into it engaged with the crowd yeah and they played a really good set list it was they kind of touched on everything which you know obviously we appreciated so uh, i wish they would come back more but shit at this point i just wish their albums were released here so you wouldn't have to (laughs) (laughs) yeah be creative how you find them yeah nice all right 
we have spent a lot of time on this record. It's uh, time to wrap it up. Andy, what do you got going on right now? We are starting a new season uh, this following Saturday. I don't know when this will post, but uh, so July, uh, what is it? The 12th, I believe, the 12th. So, yeah, I got a guy up in Staten Island, New York City, Jay Porks. He's doing a show weekly for me. Then I got a guy in Hollywood, California, Tyler Kale. He's doing a show for me, and they both are kind of stereotypes of their regions, kind of. Uh, the guy from New York's kind of like, I, I say it's like the Ramones meets Seinfeld. He goes to tons of concerts, though, <laughs> and uh, reports back on him. He's the Meat Puppets uh, social media guy. So that's how I met him. And cool. uh, Tyler, Tyler Carroll, he's all about stuff going on in Hollywood. But they're all funny. They're all got their own uh, tormented souls about them. But been doing that and been doing my own weekly show. Been uh, doing articles, uh, rock reviews for EmptyLighthouse.com. I just reviewed the new Fish album. And I just uh, did a concert review on uh, Guided by Voices. Robert Pollard put it on his Facebook. So now it's got like 150 likes on there. And uh, he appreciated the part where I, I met the guys, but we met them through a chain link fence. And I was like, it was kind of like meeting a caged rock beast. Like uh, <laughs> he was kind of like a, an, an animal or something like that. And I had to like pound, do pounds through the, the chain link fence. But uh, yeah, just a lot of cool things going on. Uh, I just want to appreciate you guys uh, having me back in uh, com. It's D-E-R-E-R. And uh, yeah, on iTunes and all that good stuff. Excellent. Cool. Everybody check that out. Uh, and you can check us out at uh, digmeoutpodcast.com if you want to request an album. Hit our request review page. And, of course, if you want to leave some feedback for us, we'd appreciate it over on our iTunes page. That's it. 182 cool. is in the books. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. And, Thanks for having uh, me. We will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Bye.